joining us on the live stream at home. My name is Mike. I'll be sharing the Word of God with you here in a moment. I'm also the guy from the video, so I have one last uh, thing to add with the ESL video that we uh, showed you. There was, a, there was a special request that I wanted to make in person. Uh, we provide transportation for the students who come on Monday nights. Uh, many of them don't have transportation, so we would take one of our church vans and go out and pick them up. Uh, last year, the, the load for that fell mainly upon one person, uh, Carl Bope, um, my good buddy. He, he carried a heavy load. Uh, he's a colonel. He's a tough guy, but I want to try to get him some help this year. Uh, I drove a little bit, and I'm prepared to drive again on Monday nights, but I would like to throw it out to you as an opportunity. If you're available on a Monday night, you just need a standard driver's license. You would show up here at 6 o'clock. Steve routes it for you, tells you exactly where you need to go, maybe three or four stops, pick up some people, get them back here by 7 then you're free from 7 to 9 to do whatever. You could go have dinner, go home, run some errands, and then at 9 o'clock, uh, bring those folks back home and drop the van off at the end of the night. So if that's something that you could help with, uh, we could love our brother Carl, help the ministry. Uh, I would really encourage you to do that. Uh, if you take the communication card that, you'll, that we'll collect later, if you just write ESL somewhere on the card, Betsy will look for that, whether it's driving or spending time with the students uh, during seven, the seven to nine period, Whatever the case may be, uh, those cards will get to me, and I'll make sure I connect with you. And one last quick thing, I'm not supposed to be doing announcements, but really quick, we are in need of child care workers, not just for Monday night, but throughout the week. Uh, this is a paid position. So we're like everyone else. We're looking for employees. So if you are uh, able to watch some kids on a weeknight, you can write child care on the card, and we will get in touch with you regarding that. Yeah, you got to be able to catch them, Tracy, which you can do that. All right, let's get to the Word of God, Romans chapter 16. We're almost done. This is the second to last sermon in this uh, long year and a half, roughly, journey we have been on. So Romans 16, if you would please stand. I'll read it to us, and we will work our way through and see what the Lord has for us. As a custom, I'm going to read from the ESV here at Living Water. Word of God says the following. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the heart's of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. This is the word of God. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, I am a sinner. You know this. But my sins have been atoned for through the great sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for that. I pray that the sin in my life and whatever may be going on inside me is a non-factor here this morning. That you would set me aside and that you would speak directly to your people. Do not let me get in the way of the message that you are to deliver this morning. And give us the ears to hear it so that we might receive it for your glory and our good. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, I want to start out right away with a, a textual issue. If you were following along in the ESV, like I was just using an ESV Bible that we have in the room here, and if I asked you to turn to the following verse, uh, verse 24, we left off in verse 23, and if I said, turn to Romans 16, 24 in your ESV Bible, perhaps you would uh, scratch your head, look up at me a little bit perplexed, because just like this Bible, it goes from verse 23 right to verse 25. Say, so where's verse 24? Well, if you look at the bottom here in this Bible, there's a footnote that says, some manuscripts insert verse 24, which is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. What we have going on here is, uh, like I said, it's a textual issue. It's a manuscript issue. These newer English translations like the ESV, uh, the NIV, even the New American Standard, they draw upon the earlier manuscripts of the text of Scripture, therefore the more reliable ones. And in those manuscripts, those words do not appear at that point in the letter. Whereas the King James Version, if you're using that, you do see them there because the King James Version of 1611, they uh, use manuscripts that contain the words. Now, this discrepancy, or, uh, this discrepancy here ought not give us pause or concern or be fearful that we cannot trust our Bibles. Uh, the fact is, no one denies Paul said those words. They just appear in the ESV at the end of verse 20. So we're having a minor textual issue here that I think is important. We should know. We value the Word of God here. We work our way through it, and these things are important. It's rather inconsequential at this point in the, in the book of Romans, but you may come across somebody who is uh, a believer who is known as a King James onlyist, and they would say to you, that ESV Bible or NAS or NIV that you're using, you ought not use it because it's been corrupted. That, that word has been altered in those newer translations. That's what a King James onlyist will say and say, you only should read the King James Version. So it, it is relevant in other places in our Bible, and I think it's important for us to be aware of this. If you are... Uh, in relationship with somebody who says King James is the only way to go, uh, let me recommend a resource to you, because uh, obviously we don't hold that view here at Living Water where we use the ESV. Uh, if that's someone that, uh, that you are trying to uh, engage with or you want to study more about this issue, let me recommend uh, a resource to you uh, written by, ironically, a guy named James, uh, Dr. James White 
wrote a book called The King James Only Controversy. He deals extensively and exclusively with that issue. I think it's the best resource out there. So that's a, a small textual issue. Let me uh, give you something else in the text that maybe caused uh, you to raise an eyebrow. Verse 22 says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. And you're saying, wait a minute, Mike. For the last year and a half, Pastor Mike, Pastor Ben, you and others have all said, Paul wrote Romans. Now we got this guy named Tertius who wrote it. What gives? Well, there's a simple answer for that. Tertius is a scribe. He's playing the role of secretary. He's simply recording what Paul is dictating. The Bible tells us Paul writes sometimes with his own hand. Other times he uses a scribe. And in this case, it is Tertius. So while we're here in the, in the greeting section with those names that I read to you, I want to kind of work backwards through our text today. So let's, let's read those again, beginning in verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. First name listed there, Timothy. We recognize that. We know Timothy. And just this past week, I was scrolling through Twitter, and I follow a, a preacher named H.B. Charles, uh, a guy who uh, got to see preach when earlier this year we went down to the Together for the Gospel conference. Uh, Pastor Mike was kind enough to let me tag along. And uh, I follow H.B. Charles on Twitter, and he posted a picture that I want to share with you. I thought it was funny. Uh, the th there was three people who laughed last night. I'll let you read it, see if you find it funny. It's kind of a geeky, nerdy thing. I'll drink some water. A little more laughter. Pastor Ben and I find this kind of stuff funny. Pretty much, though, right? I mean, that, that, that's the layout of his letters, and that's the case with Romans. So we have Timothy. He's the first name listed there. And he is, of course, the Timothy of First and Second Timothy, Paul's protege, his travel companion, and fellow worker. Then we have Lucius. Uh, many believe this is the same Lucius from Acts 13, who was a leader in the church in Antioch. Then we have Jason. Many believe this is the same Jason of uh, Thessalonica, who's mentioned in Acts 17. So Sipater, uh, again, we're not entirely sure here, but many believe he's the Berean believer and companion of Paul, mentioned in Acts 20. We covered Tertius. Uh, Gaius, this is a great example here. There's multiple people in our Bible named Gaius. So we're not exactly sure here, so I will be careful and not go beyond what Paul says. Gaius is hosting Paul while he writes in Corinth. And two more, Erastus and Cordus. Uh, Cordus, we know absolutely nothing about. He's a believer. That's all we know. And Erastus is a Corinthian. Evidently, he's a, a civil leader of sorts, being the city treasurer. So those are the names. And what can we say about these people? 
Well, the thing I'd like us to take note of is the diversity there. You have people like Timothy, who, who we know a lot about Timothy, but then he's listed right alongside a guy named Cordus, who we know nothing about. Then we have uh, people that have some sort of leadership capacity that they fill, like Tertius, who's writing down the Word of God. Very important job. Erastus has got an important job as the city treasurer. But then they're listed right alongside people that are maybe lay people, that are just, you know, maybe like Sosipater. He's just uh, faithfully serving God and God's people. And if we bring in the 20-plus names from the first 16 verses that Pastor Ben covered two weeks ago, we see even more diversity. You see men and women listed, like Phoebe. You see young and old. Again, you see people with high profiles, and then people who we don't know a lot about, they kind of fly under the radar. So you're seeing diversity in these names here. That is the church. The church of Jesus Christ is a diverse church. It was true for the Roman church in the first century, and it's true for Living Water Community Church in the 21st century. So whether it's Rome or it's Harrisburg, when you have diversity, there's something that needs to be a top priority, and it's unity. And we've covered this extensively because Paul has covered it extensively in the book of Romans. But he's not done yet. He's not done. Let's go to the top of the passage now. We'll work from verse 17 down. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Paul here is making an appeal. And you may have a translation that says urge. In fact, most translations interpret that word, a very strong word in the Greek, as urge. I prefer that because I think it, he, it's an urgent message that he is giving. It's as if he, from Corinth, is reaching across land and sea to grab the Roman church by the collar and say, I urge you, listen to me. What I'm about to tell you is extremely important. And what's his message? Watch out. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. He says, watch out. Watch out for what? False teachers. Watch out. Scopeo in the Greek. You hear scope, right? Microscope, telescope. Uh, a scope on a, on a rifle. Look out for them. Be on alert. Because they do two things. They threaten unity by causing divisions, and they create obstacles for believers. And what's his admonition? Should we entertain them? Should we give them a hearing? Should we listen to them? Should we welcome them? None of the above. He says, avoid them exclude them from your gathering. And you might be thinking, okay, wait a minute though. I remember a few chapters before, Romans 14. There were people that had differing viewpoints there. There was disagreement there. And the message wasn't avoid, shun. No, it was welcome them in. In fact, don't pass judgment upon them. Let everyone be convinced in their own mind. But yet here we have 
a group of people that we're told not to welcome in, but rather to avoid. Fair concern, right? Scripture ought to be consistent. What's the difference? Well, I think it's a difference between disputables and essentials. I think back in Romans 14, we covered this. The, 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 Paul is dealing with disputable matters in the church, those things that are preferences, opinions, matters of uh, conscience, th- things that could go either way. You know, eat the meat, don't eat the meat, drink alcohol, don't drink alcohol, what day you worship on. These things within the body, it's okay to have flexibility. And you welcome one another in and enjoy fellowship. But here in Romans 16, he has something else in view. And it's the essentials of the faith. How do I know? I think the context tells us. See, nowhere in this section do we have any indication that these people are part of the flock. They're not. And we know this by who they serve. He tells us, They are flat-out unbelievers. Look at verse 18. For such persons, these are the ones we should avoid, they do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And that's, that's literally bellies. And it's not just gluttony. They might be gluttons, but it goes way beyond that. They have appetites for power and prestige and notoriety. Appetites for sex, and appetites probably for the most vicious appetite, and the scripture speaks on a ton, money. Just follow the money. That is their appetite. So how do they do this? With smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. They are unbelievers. They may say they're part of the flock, They may claim Christ, but they're wolves in sheep's clothing. And we know this by the who they serve. They're not serving Christ, but rather they are servants of Satan. And Paul's saying to the Roman reader, and he's saying to us here, you can recognize them by their fruit, the things they do. To borrow that phrase from Jesus in Matthew 7, what do they do? They cause divisions. They create obstacles. They teach contrary to apostolic teaching. They don't serve Christ, but rather their own appetites. They're smooth talkers. They flatter. They deceive. And in context, I think what he's saying at the end of verse 19, what these people do is straight up evil. There's a world of difference between that And two believers not seeing eye to eye on pork or a glass of wine. You see that, right? You see the difference? That's why the command is avoid them. That's the difference. And so in view here in Romans 16 is essentials of the faith. These these people are attacking core doctrines. What are these core doctrines? And this is where things get a little murky sometimes because everybody kind of Uh, they slice up the pie differently and draw the lines in slightly different places. Here's what I would tell you. I believe the scriptures themselves declare to us what is essential and what isn't. For example, when the Bible says, unless you believe this, unless you hold to this, you cannot be saved. That is an indicator right there, a conditional statement. 
with regard to doctrines like the character and nature of God, the person and work of Christ, and the gospel, the God, how one is saved from their sins. You mess with those things, you're messing with essential core doctrines where hell is looming, should you reject them. Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. I believe a very clear claim to deity hearkening back to Exodus 3. Unless you believe that I am God, you'll go to hell. That's what Jesus is saying there. Galatians, got a bunch of them in Galatians. Those who preach a, a gospel contrary to that which you have received, he's to be accursed. Those seeking to be justified by law, you've fallen from grace. You're severed from Christ. This is not food and drink. Much more serious, conditional statements indicating essential doctrines. And I believe this is the type of teachings Paul has in view in Romans 16. But let's back up a little bit. Let's back up and look at how these false teachers operate. How is it that they do what they do? It's through smooth talk and flattery. And so this is how you can recognize them so that you can avoid them. They're smooth. They smile a lot. They tell you exactly what you want to hear. They, they don't show up, show up with, with horns and you know, a red suit carrying a pitchfork saying, come, follow me to hell. They're more subtle than that. They operate in the way of their master. Satan comes as what? An angel of light. He's slicker than that. Come on. These guys are likable. They're, they're winsome. They can tell a, a tale. They can t they're, they're great orators. You find yourself fascinated as you listen to them. Like, wow, this guy's a good speaker. But they're telling you tales that, that are contrary to sound doctrine. One of the most famous false teachers in all of history, this guy, he's probably on the Mount Rushmore of heretics. His name is Arius. Arius from the 4th century. He's a false teacher who denied the deity of Christ. That is an essential doctrine. And our friends from the Watchtower, Jehovah's Witnesses, are following still to this day in his wayward teaching. That's why when you get a knock at the door, that is not a fellow believer there for fellowship. That is a wolf. They hold to this doctrine, one of those essentials. But what I want to mention here is what author Parker Williamson says about Arius. He was kind of doing a, a biography of him. He wrote something that was fascinating. He's describing Arius, a false teacher. He says, here was a bright, energetic, attractive fellow, the kind of citizen whom any Rotary Club would welcome, teaching Bible stories to the Wednesday night faithful. This was an immensely popular man. His story reminds us that, his, that heresy does not bludgeon us into belief. We are seduced. They're crafty. So sometimes it's a blatant denial of a doctrine like the deity of Christ or deny the resurrection, but other times it's more subtle than that. Again, they're smooth, but a subtle difference can lead to a huge problem. If you've ever gone golfing, 
golfers know this. When you swing that club, you want the face of that club to strike the ball head on. Hopefully the ball will just boom, go straight, right? But if you tilt the face of that club just slightly, that ball is off into another fairway. But all it was was a little turn. It's all it takes. If you're a seamstress or a, a, a tailor, and, and Paul, the tent maker, makes this point. He talks about cutting doctrine straight. If you just turn it slightly, by the time you get out here, look at the gap. You got a huge problem on your hands. Don't let the subtlety fool you in thinking that it's a minor thing. It's not when it's carried out. But it's not so much what they say is what they don't say. This is where the trickiness comes in. Because they may be great speakers and talk all flowery language, but one of the things that many of these false teachers won't talk about, sin. They're not going to mention sin. If they do, they soften it. We make mistakes. Faux pas. Errors. They don't speak on God's wrath. They just tell people, God is just... He just thinks you're so wonderful. He never gets mad at anybody. And they only speak about God's love. Well, if you know your Bible, the, the Bible is replete with the attributes of God that go well beyond his love. He is love, but he's not only love. That's not all that he is. And many get duped into thinking that this is the more loving approach. This is the loving way to preach and teach. But love warns of impending danger. It does. I would say this is very unloving when people are in danger and there's a threat and you don't warn them. I mean, imagine you see a, a, a blind man walking towards a cliff and he's got headphones on and he's just walking along like this and you know he's going to fall off that cliff. Well, I don't want to bother him. He's having such a nice walk. There's a point where I tackle that man, and he might get mad at me, but as we're lying on the ground, and I'm going to say, I just saved your life, buddy. Yeah, I can see the cliff. You can't, and I'm going to warn him. That's the loving thing to do. We speak on the doctrine of hell. People don't. It's mean. It's scary. It needs to be talked about. Scriptures speak on it. Jesus spoke a ton on the doctrine of hell. What about repentance? Well, they're not going to mention repentance either. Why would they? I mean, just follow the pattern. Soften sin. It's not an issue. God doesn't get angry. Uh, he just thinks you're wonderful. He's only loving all the time. He's not just. He's not filled with wrath. Uh, hell isn't real. Therefore, why would anybody repent? Just follow it along. Right? But when we shave off the hard edges of the gospel, it is a very dangerous thing. And it begins with the doctrine of sin. When you start talking about mistakes, weakness, and brokenness. But here's the subtlety. Do we make mistakes? Yes. Are we weak? I'm weak. I know my weaknesses. Right? Am I broken? Yes. So are you. But see, that, those things hit the ear a little bit different than you're a sinner who needs to repent. See, the subtle differences here that occur when you twist the scriptures just enough, 
but you're blatantly contradicting the scriptures. God will say, or people will say that God is not angry with anybody. But yet Psalm 711 says he's angry with the wicked every day. Does God have certain love for his creatures? Absolutely. Of course he does. But the ESV Bible that you own, it says that God hates all evildoers. Psalm 5.5. Look it up. It's there. But the false teacher will say, but you're not evil. Jesus says otherwise. Matthew 7.11. Check these out. They're in our Bibles. Either we skip over them and ignore them, or we read them and heed them. See, the Bible gets mangled, and the message then gets distorted. But God commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn from sin. Otherwise, you don't go to H-E double hockey sticks. You go to hell. And I'm not afraid to use the word. Jesus used the word. And these false teachers deceive the hearts of the naive. My friends, I don't want you to be naive. Don't be gullible. Don't just take in whatever anybody says in the name of Jesus. Compare everything said about God with the Word of God. We need to be more discerning so we don't get duped. Just the other morning... My son, Nate, I woke up with, he woke up with a, an earache. And uh, I, um, we have a little pool in our backyard. About a week ago, I decided we had done swimming for the year. I've stopped cleaning it, just waiting to drain it. Well, Nate and I weren't on the same page. He went into this pool that is not exactly clean. Dirty water in the ear, wakes up with an earache, understandable. So I go into the closet to get uh, the eardrops. Well, the first thing I pick up is liquid bandage. I'm like, whoa, don't want to give them that. Put that back. I don't just grab any old thing. Then there's uh, eye drops. I'm like, okay, well, we're moving in the right direction. I'm still not going to put those in his ear. I keep going till I get to the eardrops, right? Why? I don't want to put anything in my son whom I love that's going to harm him. But yet, in the, in the realm of theology, we open up the theological medicine cabinet and we just take in anything. Well, it's for the body and it's supposed to cause relief. Yes, but when you listen to false teachers, you're pouring liquid bandage into your ear. And it's going to be a huge problem. And I love you enough to warn you. And so does Paul. I'm just following Paul. I'm following the Lord. God warns us and I want to do the same today. Just because someone is on TV, stands in front of a large crowd, mentions Jesus, they smile, they tell a great story, they wear a nice suit, they wave a Bible in the air, don't necessarily trust what they are telling you. They could be a servant of Satan. And Paul says, watch out. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, I'm saying to you, beloved, Living Water Community Church, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why? For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Not some, many. And the Bible says elsewhere, they're going to be among you. They will be among you. 
and they are today. And I know that this isn't popular. And there's a, there's, a, there's a lie that our society is believing. And because our church is in society, we're part of society, I'm afraid the lie has crept into the church. And there might be people here, even today, or watching via live stream, or saying, this is just wrong. This is very negative. You shouldn't call people false teachers. You're judging them. And it's not very loving. See, John 3.16 might be the end zone verse. You may see that in the NFL games later today. But it's not the most well-known verse, at least not in my opinion. I think it's Matthew 7.1. I've yet to meet a person who if I start Matthew 7.1, they cannot finish it. Judge not, lest ye be judged. They may have never opened a King James Bible in their entire life. They go King James on that one. And I think it's one of the most misunderstood verses in all of Scripture. Let's look at it. Let's look at the context of Matthew 7. I think this is worth our time. Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, Jesus isn't saying that we ought not judge. He's saying we ought not judge hypocritically. That's what's going on there. See, the standard that you use to judge another will be the standard used against you. And he's giving a comparison here. He's talking about your brother with a speck in their eye, and you're concerned with taking the speck out of their eye. Meanwhile, you've got a log in your own. You're refusing to deal with your garbage. You're concerned with their lesser garbage. And he's saying, that's the judging that I'm talking about, hypocritical judging. And we know this from the context. And then if Jesus is saying you should never judge, he violates his own rule in verse 5 when he says, you hypocrite. My friends, that is a judgment. He may, he's making a judgment. They're hypocrites that do this. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to do what? To judge. To remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus is not saying never be concerned with the speck in your brother's eye, let alone seek to take it out, because you know you never had clear eyes. That's not what he's saying, not at all. He's saying we need to judge, but to not do it hypocritically. You know, and the funny thing in all of this is, as you're hearing me right now, you're judging me. I hope you are. You should be judging me. Right now, judgments should be going through your mind. Is he right? Is his, is his argument sound? Is his reasoning valid? Does this follow logically? Does it make sense? Is he rightly interpreting these scriptures? My friends, these are judgments that you should be making right now. 
We never tell anybody, come into this place, check your brain at the door, and just take in whatever we tell you in the name of tolerance. We never say that. You are to test all things, and that includes me right now. Test me. Discern truth from lies, fact from fiction, right from wrong. We must judge. These are all judgments, and they are good. Because even if you say you shouldn't judge, that is self-refuting. Why? That's a judgment. You're judging the person for their judging. It doesn't make sense. It's self-defeating. This happens all the time in the realm of evangelism. You go out, you seek to share Jesus with people, and they have no problem saying things to you that are completely self-defeating. For example... You talk to him about Jesus, hey, Jesus, the gospel, he died for sinners, come, believe in him. They say, eh, no one can know anything for sure. Really? Do you know that? Because if you know that, you're one person who knows something for sure. It's self-defeating. Or they say, you, you shouldn't try to convert people to your viewpoint. Really? Because it seems like you're trying to convert me to yours. It's okay for you to do, but I can't. My favorite is uh, from popular culture. As a Yankees fan, Yogi Berra back in the day, he said this. He goes, nobody goes to that restaurant anymore. It's too crowded. Doesn't hold up. It collapses under its own weight. In his book, Tactics, Greg Kokel gives one, I think, the clearest examples of this. He calls it the suicide tactic. It just, it self-destructs. He says on page 158, he writes, during a radio broadcast, I took exception with the theology of some televangelists. I was immediately challenged by a caller who said, you shouldn't be correcting Christian teachers publicly on the radio. You're already ahead of me. Don't get, don't get ahead. To which Greg answered, then why are you calling to correct me publicly on the radio? You see it, right? So, speaking of tactics, there, somebody left this post-it note up here. I don't know. I think it's maybe from the worship team. Somebody left it here. I don't know. Let's, let's see what this, this says here. It says, tactics group starting Thursday, September 22nd, led by Mike Bongo. Hey, that's me. Register at livingwatercc.com. Look at that. Just what a coincidence. <laughs> These guys, they really need to clean up after themselves, I tell you. Well, listen, it was either that or I say the word bomb diggity and I make you all stand up and sign up for the class on your phone. So <laughs> I took the high road. You know, I mean, we are, we're known as sheep, right? I mean, he so manipulated us, did he? We had the whole church doing the chicken dance. Like, I'm not passing up an opportunity to manipulate people. All right, Romans 16, verses 19 and 20. For your obedience, Roman church, your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
So Paul is given this warning here, and it's a real threat. Why is it a real threat? They're a good church. The Roman church is a good church. Their obedience is known to all. See, this is where the threat comes in. Satan isn't going after those churches that have departed sound doctrine and are walking in disobedience. Why would he go after them? He's already got them. He comes after good churches. And I believe living water is a good church, so we need to watch out. Just like the Roman church, to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Echoing Jesus' words in Matthew 10. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. See, in the context of Romans 16, the good there would be the sound doctrine. Those things that line up with Scripture. That's the sound doctrine. That's what's good. Evil would be the corrupt doctrine that the false teachers are preaching, which cause divisions and create obstacles. We don't need to be experts in bad teaching. I think we fall into this. I've fallen into this in the past where I just, I'm studying, you know, cults and everything. And, and it's good to be aware, but we need to study the truth. You're never going to be able to keep up with all the false stuff. It pops up like every single day. You just can't do it. What we need to do is to be so aware of the authentic, the true, that we recognize the counterfeit immediately. You know, the old illustration, how do they recognize counterfeit bills? They study the real ones. And then you come across a fake bill, and you're like, yeah, this isn't real, because you know the real ones so well. And we got to know the Word of God. That's the sharp sword that we need to utilize in, in, in our attempts to wield it against the wiles of Satan. It's the Word of God. Because Satan is the one who's behind, behind all this. He's the engine driving this. Yes, he's capitalizing on their appetites and their, their motives for greed and, and, and selfism, certainly. But he's the one pushing them towards this, and they're deceiving the hearts of the naive. I love Martin Luther, his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress. He says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That's verse 20 right there. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. See, lest we be afraid that Satan and his henchmen are going to win in the end, we have confidence based on the strength of the word of God. They will not. They will not win. Satan gets one mention in the entire book of Romans. It's here today. Over the last year and a half, he does not appear in Romans until now. And what is the one message? You're doomed. That's the message. And this was predicted long ago back in the garden. Genesis chapter 3, the first gospel proclamation. Who preached it? God himself. Back in the garden. You know the story. The old serpent, he shows up. What does he challenge? He challenges the word of God. In the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. Satan slithers up and says, you will surely not die. A direct contradiction. And Adam and Eve are deceived. And then God addresses Satan directly 
and emphatically. Genesis 3, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I heard something one time that the phrase bite the dust came right from there. I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe it is. If that's the case, then queen, not the queen, but queen owes a lot of royalties to uh, the Lord with their song. <laughs> Verse 15, here it is. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who's the offspring? The Lord Jesus Christ himself who came to fulfill that promise. 1 John 3, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Scholars sum up the destruction of Satan in three stages. He was defeated back at the cross and the resurrection. He's being defeated now. Every time a believer comes into the fold, they turn from the God of this world, Satan, and they turn and turn to Christ and put their faith in him, become a Christian, and they subject themselves to not Satan any longer, but to God and his word. They, they, he is being defeated today. That's verse 20. And he will be ultimately destroyed when he's thrown into the lake of fire, never to deceive another again. That day is coming. We have it in the word of God. We know, and that's the encouragement. But until that day, 1 Peter 5.8 is still in effect. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. There it is again. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Let's close with this. Five years ago, I had the uh, privilege to preach a sermon here at Living Water. We were working through the uh, Gospel of Luke. I believe it was Luke chapter 8, and I, I delivered a, a sermon called uh, Jesus in the Storm. And in that sermon, I called out a particular false teacher by name, just like it's done in the New Testament. And there was good reason to do it because I knew for a fact that there were people at Living Water who were following his dangerous teaching. And I didn't have to talk about this person. I mean, you could preach Jesus in the boat, you know, peace be still. You don't have to invoke false teaching into that, but I, I thought it was very relevant and I chose to do that very intentionally. And the question is, why? Well, because I love Living Water Community Church. I love truth, and I want us to believe truth and not lies. That was my motive. But I knew it was going to ruffle some feathers, and it did. It did. You can hear the sermon. It's, uh, it's on our um, outreach YouTube channel. If you go to livingwatercc.com, there's a link to engage uh, gospel outreach uh, YouTube channel. It's under sermons. You can, you can hear it. You can, again, judge my attitude, my approach, my tone. Um, whether it was on point, and I, and I missed the mark a lot, I'll tell you that. But as I anticipated, I, um, I got an uh, email, and I got one email from a particular individual who uh, said she did not uh, like that part of the sermon. 
and the interesting part is she was one of those people I had in mind because I knew she followed this person's teaching. And I knew that because she had attempted to donate uh, items into our church library by this teacher, and the items had her name on it. And you could say, well, Mike, how come you didn't deal with it back then? Uh, you know, go to her personally and uh, have that conversation. I didn't. I'm just, I'm not giving you the ought. I'm giving you the is. This is just how it went down. I probably should have, okay? But she sent me an email, and she said, you want to meet with me? Question. Do you think I was glad to get that email or did that upset me? I was glad to get it. I was glad to get it. I'm always open to feedback, good, bad, or otherwise. Honestly, and I, th I think I could say that for everybody who stands here. None of us would say that we're, you know, unapproachable or anything like that. I, 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 don't, I don't hold to that at all. So I was glad. I was like, sure. Not because I want to fight, not because I want to argue, uh, because I care about this individual. And, and, and she cared enough about me. So we, we got together later that week. It was right out in this lobby. I remember the exact table we were sitting at. She came in, and I'll never forget the first words out of her mouth were, thank you. Thank you for calling out that false teacher. She goes, uh, you know, I kind of thought there was something off about him. Uh, but you provided documentation, you quoted him verbatim, uh, you know, you, you provided evidence. And she goes, Mike, I just want you to know that I'm no longer following his ministry. And I was like, wow, okay, not, not what I was expecting. And then I said, but wait a minute, you said you had a problem with that part of the sermon. And she did. She didn't like the way I did it. She said I was sarcastic. And so I went back, I listened to it, and she was right. I was sarcastic. And what we did that day at that table out there is this was two believers, church family members, brother and sister in the Lord who love and care for one another, sat down like adults across from one another at a table. I believe we prayed beforehand. I think I gave her a hug before we got started. I, how's the family? Did all of that, then got into it. And then you know what we did? We had a very civil dialogue and an impromptu Bible study on sarcasm in the scriptures. Again, I wasn't prepared. I must confess I needed Google to help me. But we looked at those verses and we determined one thing. Sarcasm isn't inherently sinful. It can be. It can be. And whether I cross the line, that's, that's a judgment call. But this isn't about that. The point is, we sat down and we talked about it because we cared for one another. And truth was central to our conversation. We both value truth and we discussed the issues as friends. Better said, as family. See, this can and should be done. Our culture does not do this. And because we're part of the culture, you know, again, in, not of, we're, part, we're, just, we're human beings. We don't like confrontation. We, we, we think it's going to be this name-calling, you know, just horrible time together. No, we sit down and we discuss and we work through. And if at the end of the day we don't agree, that is okay. And that's what happened that day. But I took her warning to heart. I got loose lips. I know this. 
I, what she said to me, I was like, Mike, you better watch your mouth. And so I was glad she brought that to my attention. We had a wonderful time together. So when we warn, whenever we engage, let our words and our attitude, our tone and our behavior mimic what is said here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll end right here. The Lord's servant, you and me, servant, slaves of Christ, remember, you and me must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for those verses that we readily accept that are comforting to us, that remind us of your love for us, your provision in Christ, the kind way that you treat us. But let us not only look to those verses and let those be the only ones in our Bible that we highlight or underline, but that we would deal with the tougher matters as well. When it comes to faulty doctrine, when it comes to false teachers, when it comes to difficult things like hell and repentance and all of those things, Lord, let us not just embrace that which we find palatable. Let us take the full counsel of God and take it to heart and let it first just impact us such that we are so well familiar with the truth we know it like the back of our hand, knowing we will never fully exhaust your word but that we would study your word and that we would actually put it into practice. And we do pray for those who teach false doctrine. Uh, I pray for those who are caught up in it, that are being taken for a ride emotionally, spiritually, financially. I pray that you would uh, rescue them from the clutches of servants who uh, are serving Satan instead of serving you. And let us do what your word says. Let us be watchful and be on alert. Thank you, Lord, for this church. I pray that this message is received in the way that it's intended. We value truth. We value your truth. We value and love one another, too. So that's why truth is so important to us. What also is important to us, Lord, is the offering that we are entrusted to. You've entrusted to us truth and resources, and we ought to be good stewards of both. Lord, I pray that as people give, they do it because they want to give. They believe that the gospel is preeminent. It is of first importance and that we are proclaimers and we are defenders of it. And so we would use these resources to that end. I pray all of this in Jesus' good name. Amen. In a moment, our ushers will come down and uh, collect the 